This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. It's been a year since Hurricane Ian slammed into southwest Florida and for many the recovery continues. Today we'll revisit parts of the greater Tampa Bay region that are still rebuilding and explore the mental and physical toll left in Ian's wake. We'll share reporting from WUSF journalists on the lingering aftermath of the powerful storm. Stephanie Colombini talks with healthcare advocates in Sarasota about Hurricane Ian's impact and lessons for the future. Kathy Carter takes us inside the historic Venice Theatre as the theatre company works to restore the community landmark. And Kerry Sheridan explores what Ian revealed about communicating the risk posed by hurricanes and why evacuation warnings are sometimes ignored. First though, we'll check in on one community that was affected by Hurricane Idalia nearly a month ago. Idalia brought a powerful storm surge to a large swath of the Gulf Coast and left some Hernando County residents with a big clean-up after their homes and businesses flooded in the hours after the storm passed. We spoke with County Administrator Jeff Rogers by Zoom about how the county is coping. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me again today. Soon after Hurricane Idalia, WSF reporters talked with residents and business owners in Hernando Beach, and they were busy cleaning up flood damage. How bad was that flood impact, and which areas of the county got it worst? Obviously, it didn't affect uh, Hernando County as much as it did to some of our neighbors to the north, and uh, you know we were blessed there. So the areas that did get impacted, obviously, the coastal areas of the county, area from the south part of the county at Arapica, and then moving northward through Hernando Beach, up into Pine Island, which is kind of like the center of our county. Those are the uh, populated areas that got some impacts there. Were people displaced by the storm at all? There were some people, not a lot, but there were some families that um, the houses, we did get you know several um, feet of water in them. And so those houses currently obviously have to get remediated and wet products out and the mold removed. And so those houses are kind of not uh, livable today. And so we have some people in temporary housing, whether that's in friends and family places or some hotels, while they're trying to uh, repair those houses that were inundated. There was a couple houses that we lost totally, though. And was that from storm surge? The two houses that we lost totally were actually due to fire. So we had a couple houses that caught on fire during the storm event. I think one was total loss and one might be able to repair repairs, but... Those people are definitely displaced right now. And the firefighters, if I'm not wrong, couldn't get to those houses to put the fires out because of the flooding, right? We had the National Guard here too in some of their high water vehicles, and we couldn't get to those houses due to the storm events. So we were able to get there on an airboat, but there's not a lot you can do with an airboat to stop a house from burning down. Jeff, do you have a number of people who are out of their houses presently and waiting for repairs or rebuilding? That total number is tough because a lot of people um, are, are self-sufficient. They don't necessarily come to the, um, you know, we have uh, FEMA's here, disaster recovery centers, American Cross is obviously mobilized also. But we definitely know of a handful of five to 10 families that have been displaced while they're getting their places updated and able to return to those places. You mentioned FEMA, Red Cross. Where can people go if they need help with recovery or rebuilding and what kind of assistance is the county able to offer? So first, FEMA is located in our Spring Hill Library on Spring Hill Drive, 9 to 7 every day. And also you can register that online. We definitely intend everybody should register. Even if you don't think you're eligible for FEMA, you should definitely register to see. And then locally, you can always talk to our emergency management office at the county office, and we can connect you to uh, resources locally, whether that's temporary housing through the Red Cross or 
food assistance and anything else uh, that people have uh, since this time, transportation issues. It's really a community effort. We have a great, we call it co-ed, it's community organizations after disasters. And this is everybody from the United Way to nonprofits to churches involved and just figuring out where the unmet needs are for these individuals and then moving the resources to get to them. So uh, in the day, call the county and we will find the resource that needs for you. On September 15th, the county extended the local state of emergency declaration. What does that allow you to do? It allows me as a county administrator to have some of the authority to move resources quicker than having to go through the normal procurement processes of making sure we get multiple bids and advertising things. So I can hire some services quicker to respond to the storm event. It also allows us within our county management to move individuals and staff around to provide the resources quicker. Do you have a rough idea of the economic impact of the storm so far on, say, tourism, fishing, and other industries? Yeah, it's tough to tell about the fishing industry because I know they do move the product around a little bit, whether that's the crab or, or shrimp or fish go to different areas. So that's probably to be told still if, there's, what, if there is any impact to them. Tourism-wise, we've discovered a lot this during this. We have more VRBO rentals. You know, a lot of our houses out there, more than we had um, thought, were actually people's second houses that are using for um, some uh, investments. A lot of those did get some damage in them and they're having to get repaired. We don't know the financial number yet, but definitely a, a decrease in our um, revenue from bed tax because of this. We think it'll recover, though, because majority of houses are able to be rebuilt, recovered. Very few houses got enough damage to have to not be recovered. Uh, we think it'll come back quickly, but definitely probably lost a portion of a month's worth of revenue. We usually bring in over a couple hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue, so we probably lost forty, fifty thousand dollars in taxable revenue this month. What else did the storm teach you, and what would you do differently next time, do you think? We haven't had a surge like this level in a long time here. Um, and not like a lot of people turning the electricity off before the waters get too high. The local electric company, Wittsukuchi Regional Electric Company, they were on top of this, advising us before the waters got too high that they wanted to turn off the power. I can tell you, and Pasco even had more fires than we did. Those decisions to turn that power off, they're tough decisions to make. But I think in the future, we are going to be uh, more bold about telling people that as the storm surge comes up, we will be turning off all your services and we will do it sooner. And that, that'll probably help people know not to stay there, right? So the few people we had to rescue, I think if they knew that that guaranteed power was going off, fewer people would stay. It gets uncomfortable really quick. And so lesson learned for us is we're going to be pretty bold next time on saying if them storm barges are coming up, we will disconnect power ahead of time to prevent the houses from burning down due to salt water getting electrical lines. And so that's probably the biggest takeaway we have is understanding how electricity and surge waters work together. It doesn't work really well. Yeah, not a good mix. Speaking of evacuations too, I mean, what do you think could be done differently aside from letting them know that power is going to be out to get people to heed those warnings? Because that can be a challenge for them and also for folks trying to affect those rescues. I think we were pretty fast early to shut down schools. Um, I think it's important to not try to have the community operating until the last minute before the storm event, because I think people start taking it seriously when government shuts down and schools shut down a day or so before a storm event, because people uh, impacts people's lives. And so I think that we went out pretty early on Monday and had no school on Monday. 
and to make sure all those people were not trying to do life as normal and government shutdown. But as for evacuation warnings, I think we did a pretty good job even driving around roads and telling people there's always going to be a portion of people that don't leave. And I think you're not going to change some people. Some people have some houses built that they believe will withstand it all. I think getting rid of some services, electricity and things is going to change some people's minds about in the future. But uh, I think we did a pretty good job on telling people that some people just don't pay attention. So nothing we can do. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you checking back in after the storm event. Jeff Rogers is the Hernando County Administrator. We spoke to him by Zoom. Some communities are still recovering one year after Hurricane Ian. On the morning after Hurricane Ian made landfall, staff and volunteers with the Venice Theatre woke up to news that the building had been severely damaged. 115 mile an hour winds caused the structure's rear wall to collapse and blew off the roof, letting in substantial rain that flooded much of the theatre. WUSF's Kathy Carter met with its director to talk about restoration efforts. Walking past several tall flats of wood and large spools of electrical wire, I meet Christopher Getty, executive director of the Venice Theatre, for a look at a newly renovated section of the historic venue. This is the back door of the stage. Last time you were here, it was probably underwater, at least a few inches of it. But we'll go into the green room and talk and sit quietly. Above our heads, temporary power lines hang from the ceiling. Soon, crews will move transformers and bury the lines underground to comply with modern building codes. That power grid upgrade is just one of several makeovers the theater has had to take on since the Category 4 storm blew through Venice. Things have changed immensely, but we still do what we do, and that is making a dramatic impact on all stages of life. And Hurricane Ian helped do that because it made a dramatic impact on us. Parts of the Venice Theatre, built in 1926, couldn't withstand Ian's massive winds, and the back wall that collapsed was part of the main auditorium, the 432-seat Jerby Theatre. Days after the hurricane, theatre leaders thought they would have the space mostly restored by now. But Getty says unexpected financial issues have slowed down the rebuilding. It's going to cost a lot of money, and folks ask, what about insurance? Yes, we had insurance, but insurance gave us a replacement cost, and we just bought a roof about six years ago. It was $250,000, but now that exact same roof is $895,000. So that's the scale at which things have increased. Besides higher costs, the theater company also has to replace parts that no longer exist. 15-year-old incandescent stage lighting instruments that were destroyed now have to be upgraded to LED lighting which is about 10 times more expensive than the old lighting system. In total, the Venice Theatre must raise an additional $8.4 million to complete the restoration. Getty says leaders hope they can get part of a recent $201 million federal grant awarded to Sarasota County for ongoing hurricane recovery. Commissioners are still hashing out how they will divvy up the money among every request across the county. In the meantime, Getty says all donors are welcome. You will hear a lot from us about fundraising, and if... There are there any millionaires out there that have a spare million? You know, we'd be more than happy to have it. <laughs> Despite all the challenges, it is that good-natured attitude that has kept the community theater going. Less than three months after the storm, Venice Theater transformed one of the office buildings into an interim performing space. So we're walking across the parking lot to what is now the Raymond Center, which was going to be our education building, and it will be our education building again. It's just we're using it now as a temporary 130-seat theater. 
In addition to that, they reopened the smaller Pinkerton Theater in January. The 90-seat venue has rehabilitated lighting and sound equipment and borrowed seating courtesy of a different community theater in Winterhaven. Since November, the Venice Theater has staged more than a dozen shows from comedies to dramas. And Getty says, that's the thing about small-town theater. It's not just a building, it's a community. It's where the heart is. Every morning, there's a line of cars of volunteers, whether they're doing scenic work or costume work, or whether they're doing administrative work, it's for the love of it. A new and improved Venice Theater Complex is now expected to be finished by late summer 2024. I'm Kathy Carter, WUSF 89.7 News. And you can learn more about the Venice Theater's hurricane recovery plan on our website, wusfnews.org. You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, we talk more about the lingering physical and mental impact of Hurricane Ian and explore the science of communicating the risk posed by storms and why evacuation warnings are sometimes ignored. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. The one-year anniversary of Hurricane Ian this week may bring back painful memories for some Floridians, especially those hard hit by the storm who are still struggling. Health News Florida's Stephanie Colombini talked with advocates in Sarasota about the mental and physical strain Ian has caused some residents in the region and lessons learned for the future. Vicki Guy gets goosebumps when she thinks about the immediate aftermath of Ian. The Sarasota resident remembers anxiously trying to reach friends and family who lived further south and needed rescuing after the Category 4 storm flooded their homes. Her mom needed help with her own damaged house nearby. It was a lot of stress, a lot of trauma. You know, it felt like your whole world was shook up. And Guy had others to worry about. She's a program manager with the Multicultural Health Institute. The nonprofit helps residents with low incomes access health care and other social services. Guy says many of her clients experienced similar distress after the storm, which displaced thousands of Floridians from their homes and disrupted parts of the health care system. It kind of left people scrambling. Um, after the storm, there was people, a lot of people that went without medication. You know, doctor's appointments, the routine of keeping up their health um, sometimes goes by the wayside because you're so busy trying to survive. The Multicultural Health Institute shifted the way it provides services by adding a focus on those affected by Hurricane Ian, even expanding assistance south to the counties most impacted by the storm. As recently as this spring, they've been helping with special relief efforts, providing basics like food and diapers, and they've been supplying medical equipment and offering free screenings to residents to help get their health back on track. Certified trauma specialist Helen Neal with the community group SRQ Strong has also been a partner in helping address Ian's mental wounds. You know, people were devastated. People lost their homes. They lost everything. You know, so it's been very hard this year. Neal offers a supportive ear to clients who need to talk through their pain and works with them on breathing exercises and other tactics to better handle stress. You know, what's happened has happened. You can't change it. But what you think about it, you can, and that can help you move forward. So that's kind of what I do. The one-year anniversary is going to be a tough time for many, Neil says. She worries especially about those connected to the nearly 150 people who died from the storm. Those grieving process comes back up. That hurt comes back up. And one year later, some people are still picking up the pieces. They're waiting for relief money or insurance payouts to fix homes and buildings still moldy or unlivable from storm damage. For working-class families, that can add more stress and lead to other health problems. 
Dr. Lisa Merritt, Executive Director of the Multicultural Health Institute, says Ian highlights inequities in the region where recovery is often limited to the wealthy. And yet the people who serve those people, the essential workers, the caregivers, the gardeners, the restaurant workers, you know, the basic just making it people that are really suffering the most are still struggling. Adding to the problem is that the storm struck Florida as the state was experiencing an affordable housing crisis and one of the highest inflation rates in the country, challenges that persist now. Just imagine you're living somewhere, you kind of make it through the storm, you're doing all right, and then the next thing you know, bam, they raise the rent. And then on top of it, your child's inhaler is going to cost you $250. As part of their ongoing work, Merritt staff helps residents apply for financial assistance to access and pay for things like housing and health care. She spoke as Hurricane Idalia approached the state last month and knew with lessons learned, their clients were in better shape this time around. Because we're checking on them all the time to make sure they're getting to their appointments. Do they have their medications? Do they have their diabetes supplies? So the importance of making sure people have what they need. Idalia spared Southwest Florida compared to Ian, but Merritt says the work has to continue. She says helping residents get to a stable place year-round will better prepare them mentally and physically for future storms. For Health News Florida, I'm Stephanie Colombini. Weather forecasts are far from perfect, but they have become more accurate over the years. For example, people now have several days advance warning of a hurricane's approach. A better forecast is one thing, but getting people to actually act on this information is another. And as extreme weather becomes more common due to climate change and more dangerous to human survival, meteorologists are considering how to better communicate the risks of weather to the public. After many didn't heed evacuation warnings during Hurricane Ian, WUSF's Kerry Sheridan spoke with experts who talked about what needs to change. Three days before Hurricane Ian made landfall, on a Sunday, I was assigned to go to some grocery stores in Sarasota to see how people were preparing. I'm a reporter. I'm reporting on storm coverage. And I was wondering if I could ask you, have you bought some stuff for the storm today? Actually not. We're just <laughs> buying regular stuff because we saw it's really not going to affect us that much. So. Oh, okay. We, so we really didn't do any. That's Marie Amos shopping with her husband Greg outside of Winn-Dixie. And that's what I heard again and again. People told me they were just doing their regular shopping. It looks like you got some water. Are you preparing for the storm? No, not really. Oh, no. I'm not even thinking about it. (laughs) Nobody seemed especially worried, even though for at least the last five days, weather forecasts had shown the potential of a direct hit to our area in central to southwest Florida. Sarasota, where I talked to these shoppers, was in what forecasters call the cone of uncertainty. It's a shape-shifting image, picture like a squiggly tadpole. It represents the forecaster's best prediction of where the storm will likely hit. The western edge of Florida, near Mobile, Alabama, all the way down close to Fort Myers. That's a wide territory that could see landfall. We still don't know. Three days before Ian hit, the cone was huge. Hurricane Ian ended up making landfall at the very southern edge of that cone. It was among the most powerful storms to ever hit Florida, a Category 4 hurricane with wind speeds of 150 miles per hour. The death toll so far is more than 100. That's 10 times higher than Charlie, another Category 4 storm that followed a similar path in 2004. One was a 57-year-old woman 
for her, the roof caved in while she was uh, in the home during the storm. That's Russell Vega, medical examiner in Sarasota. Many of the storm's victims were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Many drowned. Some were found clinging to debris. While we considered all these deaths preventable, some of them were likely inevitable. But I do think that we need to view all of them as things that we could do better and improve on, and whether that's communication or whether it's earlier communication, more accurate communication, uh, I, I don't know. Making sure people understand the forecasts and heed the warnings is a problem that meteorologists and social scientists have been working on for years. Because we could have the perfect forecast from a modeling perspective or from a weather forecasting perspective, but if people didn't get the information, they weren't available to hear it, or they heard it and misconsumed it, was it a good forecast? That's Marshall Shepard, director of the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia and a former president of the American Meteorological Society. He says, for starters, the cone of uncertainty is hard for people to wrap their heads around. What we know is that many people uh, misunderstand that cone. Uh, they believe that it means the center of the cone is where the storm is going. There tends to be a focus on the line or the little dots in the center of the cone. But in fact, what the cone is suggesting is that there's a two out of three chance that anywhere in that cone, the center of the storm will be. Marshall says that's not easy to grasp for many people. The public struggles with things like probability. We see that in just a percent chance of rain forecast. Many people struggle with what that actually means for them. Marshall also says people often base their decisions on previous experiences, other storms they've lived through. But with more extreme weather due to climate change, that's not a good way to go. This idea that I've lived through storms like this before, what I call normalcy bias or optimism bias, just doesn't apply. We have to really convey in risk communication that as we see more anomalously strong hurricanes or extreme events in part due to climate change, your past experience is not a reference point for something that's an anomaly. Some people have criticized weather forecasters for not translating weather risks into terms viewers and listeners can understand. Marshall thinks the burden is on the public to change. No, I don't think the meteorologists need to. I think the, I think we need to train on the uh, on the other end of the spectrum. I think we need to train the public and policymakers on how to consume this information better. On that point, Susan Jocelyn, a professor of psychology at the University of Washington, disagrees. For a number of reasons, that isn't a good solution. People can absorb and use information as long as it's tailored to how they're thinking about it and their decisions. Susan studies the way people make choices when given weather information, to evacuate or not, to cover plants if there's a chance of a freeze, things like that. Susan says people can handle more complexity than they're given credit for. For instance, when weather forecasters acknowledge the degree of uncertainty in the forecast, she says her experiments show that's good. It actually builds trust. She says it's also best to keep the message direct, simple, and specific. So if, for instance, someone is concerned about temperatures falling below freezing, there's something they're going to do to their plants or something if it falls below freezing, it's important to say that there's a 10% chance that the temperatures will be below freezing instead of there's a 90% chance it'll be above freezing. But being very direct and clear doesn't always get results. Take the case of Hurricane Ike, which hit Galveston, Texas in 2008. More than 140,000 coastal residents in Ike's path didn't evacuate, despite authorities warning them that they faced certain death. 
37 people are known After hearing that so many Texans defied the National Weather Service's warning of certain death if they stayed, Rebecca Morse, a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, wanted to find out why. And so we went down to Galveston and that area and talked to people who had evacuated, who'd been flooded, who hadn't evacuated. And we learned about all the complexities of how people interpret the information. Um, for some people, that message was really compelling and it made them want to evacuate or it helped them motivate a family member to evacuate. For some people, they really wanted to defy the message and stay and show that the information was wrong. So how do you convince people who may just think they know better or may resist being told what to do? Rebecca has a Ph.D. in atmospheric science, and she's been focusing on the psychology of storm communication for the past 20 years. She says this is a growing field. Um, of course, there's a loss of life and the damage. And there's also the trauma, you know, the trauma people experience of what is it like to be in your house and think you're going to die. And, you know, it's just horrible. And we can't stop the hurricanes. Um, but my hope is that by improving the science and then improving how that science is communicated, we can help them know what they're trying to avoid so that they can make the best decisions for themselves. It's an effort that's happening around the world. The UK's National Weather Service, the Meteorological Office, hired its first socio-meteorologist, Helen Roberts. When we're forecasting the weather, we're not doing it just for the sake of understanding the future state of the atmosphere. It's all about how it impacts people. We often say we want to tell people what the weather will do, not what the weather will be. She says research in the UK has shown it's useful to outline easy steps people can take. So if preparing for a power outage, get out a flashlight, or as she calls it, a torch. The insight here is put the easiest first. Put the torch at the top. Most people can quite easily locate a torch. And the reason for doing that is that if you put the most difficult first, people will often not do anything. They'll go, that's too difficult, can't be bothered, um, don't know where to go, so not do any of it. Severe heat warnings are a relatively new phenomenon in Europe, and there, Helen has another tip. It's really useful to frame the action statement in terms of helping somebody else. So, for example, suggesting that you check in on an elderly relative or neighbor. Then add specific actions to take, like make sure they drink plenty of water, keep their blinds closed during the day. And what they found was not only was that much more likely that people would take the advice and, and do those behaviors, but there was a double win whereby because they'd already done it on behalf of someone else, they were then more likely to do it for themselves as well. Helen says they're also taking the message to where people are on social media these days, like TikTok. Issued a rare red warning for Storm Eunice, which hits the UK on Friday. Southern there are no fancy graphics, no dancing, just a close-up of a young man talking over a simple map with zones at risk colored in yellow, orange, and red. In the amber warning area, there's the risk of 70 and in some places 80 mile per hour wind gusts. This would lead to widespread disruption to power supplies as well as transport. And these would be damaging winds for trees and for buildings. And a clear explanation of what the weather will do and how it will affect people's lives. It's the direction of the future in forecasting. I'm Carrie Sheridan. That report first aired on WHYY's The Pulse last November. You can find links to this and reporting from Kathy Carter and Stephanie Colombini marking one year since Hurricane Ian on our website, wusfnews.org. 
There you can also find Florida Matters or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. That's our show for this week. Our producer is Steve Newborn. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.